It's Sunday, 19th of March, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, I'll be talking to the head of our climate economics coverage about why India is set to become the world's biggest polluter. But now I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. It's around seven o'clock in the evening London time. It seems a deal has been done for UBS to take over Credit Suisse, but it's also been another weekend scramble to shore up market confidence ahead of the week's opening. Is this going to work? Has enough been done to staunch this crisis? Well, I think the most immediate question is how markets will digest the news of the UBS deal to buy Credit Suisse. I suspect on the one hand, there'll be a big sigh of relief across the financial system and sector that this deal was able to go through over the weekend before markets opened on Monday. And I'm sure there was an enormous amount of pressure imparted by regulators to make sure that that happened. Set against that, the reported price that's quite low to credit book value might suggest that a lot of their assets are either impaired or perceived as being at risk of becoming impaired. And if that's the case, then it's possible that we get a relief rally, but as markets digest the details, perhaps we get renewed jitters about the health of the banking system. So if you step back, I think a key point to stress in all of this is that the global banking system as a whole remains well capitalized. Likewise, central banks, I think, can also take comfort from the fact that the new tools that they've put in place over the past several years to provide liquidity to financial institutions appear to be working. They could be expanded if needed. You put those things together, I think a full-blown repeat of the global financial crisis of 2007-8, which some have hinted at over the past week, I think is probably unlikely. I think more fundamentally, central banks can probably also take some comfort from the fact that the new tools that they have developed over the past couple of years and put in place to provide liquidity to financial institutions in times of stress appear to be working in aggregate. So there's problems in SVB and Credit Suisse and so on, but the system as a whole is much better capitalized. So the post-GFC framework of regulation appears to be to be holding up. Still early days, as you say, and, and, and a lot can still go wrong. I think what the past week has really revealed is that there are vulnerabilities lurking in the system as interest rates rise. And stemming crises tends to be a bit like a game of whack-a-mole. You put out one fire and another fire quickly ignites. And that's going to be the key risk, I think, for the coming week. Will there be new problems arising in other parts of the financial system or or institutions? And, And how could this situation escalate? You talked about the steps taken to contain this and how, I guess, lessons learned from, from Lehman onwards have staunched the more extreme concerns about the crisis. But what are the channels through which this situation goes to DEFCON 1? Yes, I think there are three ways in which this situation could escalate. The first would be that we see further institutions suffer the same problems that Silicon Valley Bank had in terms of struggling with unrealized losses on bond portfolios as a result of higher rates and, and lower bond prices. Now, John Higgins, our chief markets economist, has crunched the numbers on this. And we produced a a major piece of research on on Friday going into this in detail. The key message from that is that the industry as a whole doesn't appear to have worryingly high uninsured deposit ratios and unrealized losses on the held to maturity securities in banks' portfolios do not appear to exceed capital in aggregate. So there's some reassuring messages there. But of course, Problems could flow in individual institutions, and that would reinforce a sense of nervousness around the health of the financial sector with with knock-on impacts on financial markets. 
So that's one potential source of risk. Another would be that even if we don't get unrealized losses causing problems, institutions could run into problems for other reasons. It's tempting to kind of dismiss the problems that SVB and Signature Bank and Credit Suisse is idiosyncratic. But I think what they reveal, the common thread, is that there are risks in the financial system that are lurking there and that those are starting to materialize as interest rates go up. And key areas to monitor, I think, would be some of the smaller European banks, shadow banks, open-ended funds that have liquid liabilities but illiquid assets. Those could be potential sources of vulnerability. The major risk, though, and this is what everyone, I think, should be paying very close attention to, is that so far, the problems have been about uh, interest rate risk uh, and the mismanagement of that. The game changer would be if this morphs into a crisis about credit risk. In other words, the quality of banks' loan books and, and assets more generally. So if we were to start to see asset prices fall more fundamentally, either because housing bubbles collapse or economies weaken and, and loan losses rise, then I think that would, would mark the start of, of a more dangerous phase of this crisis. Now, banks are better capitalized, they're better able to absorb losses, as we've discussed. So for those reasons, we don't expect a rerun of the global financial crisis of 2007, 2008. But if you're thinking about how could this escalate in a way that would be materially more concerning, that's the source. We had an ECB meeting on the Thursday. It was, it was a pleasant surprise. A 50 basis points hike looked like a risky move going into the meeting, particularly given that the banks had communication problems in the past, but they seem to have pulled it off. Markets took the announcement in its stride. Is that something of a template for the Fed and the Bank of England in terms of what we could expect to see from them? I think it might be. Now, when we think about the implications for monetary policy, it goes without saying at the risk of stating the obvious, it all depends on how the crisis unfolds from here, whether it escalates further or not, and whether, whether some of those worst case scenarios that we discussed start to materialise. Uh, now, I think a reasonable base case, indeed our base case, is that we avoid a system-wide crisis, but that we will get further casualties along the way in terms of individual institutions. Now, if that's the case, then I think the way that the Bank of England responded to the LDI crisis back in October offers a template for others to follow. If you remember back then, what it was doing was it was still raising interest rates to, to dampen inflation pressures, but it was also providing substantial liquidity to markets in order to ease those financial strains. And, and essentially, that's what the, the ECB did over the past week. It raised interest rates to, to tackle the inflation threat, while at the same time reminding uh, markets that it was there as the lender of last resort, it was committed to that role, and that it would provide liquidity to any institutions that, that needed it. So I suspect that might be the same playbook that the Bank of England will follow when it meets in the coming week on Thursday and when the Fed meets on uh, Wednesday. So we've got a 25 basis point increase from both central banks in our forecast, but clearly a lot depends on, on how conditions in markets play out over the, the coming days. And, and how does this situation feed into the, the broader inflation struggle? The past week or so with the Fed, we've gone from extreme hawkish outlook following Powell's testimony to, to Congress, followed by rapid downgrade of interest rate hike expectations. They've frankly been all over the shop. So what does all of this mean in terms of that, that bigger picture fight? If you take a step back, we've spent, all of us have spent the past several months focusing 
very heavily on the macro data, the incoming inflation numbers, the incoming numbers on jobs. And that's meant that some of the financial sector issues have, have taken a bit of a back seat. I think the past week has, has served as a reminder that money, credit, and the financial system not only matter, but they're a key channel through which monetary policy starts to affect the real economy. Now, with that in mind, a key issue for central banks to consider when they set policy is the extent to which the events of the past week will start to affect credit conditions and lending in the real economy by banks. So we were already seeing surveys of banks suggesting that lending conditions would tighten, and we'd factored that into our into our forecast, which is still for a mild recession in, in both the Eurozone and, and the US. I think the events of the past week mean that we can expect lending conditions to tighten even further than we had anticipated, but that will in turn feed into further additional economic weakness. And of course, that's what's doing the central bank's job in terms of bearing down on demand, containing inflation pressures. So if you put all that together, I think what this means is that central banks should ultimately have to do less work in terms of bearing down on demand, getting on top of inflation. All other things being equal, I suspect what the events of the past week mean is that interest rates won't have to rise as far or as fast as markets had been anticipating at the start of this month. And indeed, that's consistent with our, with our own forecasts. But a flip side to that, though, is that having credit conditions tighten, taking the steam out of inflation, but having this happen through the spread of a fear about institutional failure is inherently dangerous, isn't it? Yes, I think it's incredibly difficult for central banks in those circumstances to calibrate the policy response. You're right that in a perfect world, what would happen is lending conditions would tighten, banks would rein in credits, the real economy would slow, there might be a mild recession, but we wouldn't get a big spike in unemployment. The problem, of course, is that once you start to get strains emerging in the financial sector, once you start to get an element of fear in the financial sector, you can very quickly lose control of events. They, they take on a momentum of their, their own. The central bank loses control and you get a much deeper downturn as a result. So yes, I think you're right. I think that the risks of a much harder landing in the real economy have increased as a result. That was Neil Shearing on the latest episode in this rapidly developing situation. Now, from banking crisis to climate crisis. On Monday, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change releases its latest climate report. It's been generating a lot of press coverage in the lead-up to its release, and I spoke to David Oxley recently about what to expect. David's the head of our climate economics coverage, and he's just released our inaugural Climate Economic Outlook, an in-depth analysis which outlines our long-term emissions forecasts. I started by asking David what the IPCC report is and why it matters. Well, in, in a sense, it doesn't matter hugely. We're not going to learn a great deal in the coming week. Indeed, the overall objective of the synthesis report produced by the IPCC is to, in their words, integrate and summarise the findings of the reports that have already been released as part of this assessment period, the sixth assessment period, which started in 2015. The IPCC is very much bringing together the scientific opinion behind climate. So all policymakers at the UN and, you know, aligned behind Paris goals are all singing from the same hymn sheet on the scientific front. So, for example, the work that they've done in recent years has spelled out that it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the planet. Um, and, and they've also done a lot of work looking at the extent to which mitigation efforts could help to 
reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 along the lines of what would be ideal in the Paris Agreement. So it, it really complements the, the, the work and the aspirations agreed elsewhere, but it's very much the scientific body of opinion and expertise. The goals that were agreed to in Paris, those goals are underpinned by the scientific work of the IPCC. Yes, exactly. The work from the IPCC shows that if we could keep global warming close to one and a half degrees relative to its pre-industrial average, this would help to reduce some of the economic and societal losses, although it won't eliminate them completely. So the work of the IPCC is really instrumental in showing that actually what would be the difference between actually seeing a two degrees rise in temperature relative to one and a half degrees, you know, and how the the change in impacts globally would not necessarily be linear. So yeah, this scientific evidence has been pivotal to the the aspirations to if if we really want to reduce and to to avoid the potential for quite substantial tipping points, for example, in the sort of feedback loops, one and a half degrees really is what we should be aiming for. You've just published our first climate economics outlook. Can you talk us through some of the headline forecasts in that report? So, for example, do you see the rise in global average temperatures staying within 1.5 degrees? We don't. I mean, I must stress what we've done with our a long-term climate outlook is to present what we see as a, a plausible baseline scenario for how global emissions are going to develop over the, the coming decades. Our baseline view is that, well, first of all, we're going to see a decoupling between economic activity and global emissions. So we certainly do not subscribe to the degrowth view of the world in which the only way to reduce emissions is to consume and produce less. We do not believe that is the case. We're, we're quite optimistic that a combination of technological progress, some government actions and policies and regulations can help to achieve reductions in emissions. However, the key point is that we don't think we're going to see the, the types and scope of emissions reductions that are likely to be required to limit the global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. As it happens, it's very hard to triangulate these things, but our baseline emissions scenario is broadly consistent with following the IPCC's intermediate emissions scenario over the coming decade or so. So globally, we think emissions are probably going to flatline or something over the next decade, and then start to bend down thereafter and to fall by around 40% between now and 2050. It's very hard to triangulate given trajectories for emissions with what that means in terms of climate outcomes, temperature outcomes. There is yeah, we, we are not climate scientists for a start. And of course, there's huge amounts of uncertainty around this. Notwithstanding that, using the sort of modelling that the IPCC has produced and some of the sort of error bounds produced around their own scenarios, our baseline view is that we're going to see some sort of degree of emissions reduction that would help to limit the global increase in the average temperature to around about 1.9 degrees, 1.8, 1 1.9, just shy of two degrees. So you mentioned this idea that the relationship between economic growth and emissions will break down in the coming years. It's a relationship that's been at the heart of the climate debate almost forever. I mean, talk through some of the forces that are going to drive this unwinding that you describe in your report. Well, fundamentally, we rely on a framework to forecast carbon emissions over time called the Kyo identity. So 
there's actually four distinct drivers of the Kaya identity. Two of them are economic in nature, so population growth and GDP per capita. So basically what, what we refer to as economic factors, what role in isolation will they have on pushing up emissions on their own? And the other two aspects of the identity are more energy related. So the other two parts of the puzzle are energy intensity. So how much energy do you require in an economy to produce a given amount of output GDP? And then the final and perhaps the most important element is how much carbon and greenhouse gases in general are produced per unit of energy. So our forecast for long-term emissions are really a function of how much upward pressure is going to be placed on emissions from economic factors. But fundamentally, I think that the, the big uncertainty is the extent to which energy mixes are going to decarbonize over the coming decades. Again, this will differ from country to country. I think in, in advanced economies, the pathway is pretty clear. You know, we've seen the cost of renewable energy come down substantially over, over the past 10 years or so. And it's already very, very competitive with fossil fuels, even though the cost of renewables has gone up recently as interest rates have risen. But I, I think also, for as, as the war in Ukraine has demonstrated, energy security is really also bringing the benefits of renewables well up the agenda. So I think at the developed market level, yeah, there's going to be ongoing progress in increasing the role of renewables in energy mixes, and this will help to decarbonize. There's really too much in this report to get into now, but I don't want to let you go without talking about a few key countries, a few key polluters, namely the US and China. It, it, it's felt for a long time that climate goals won't be achieved without having them on side. Is this going to be the story for the next three decades as well? It's certainly going to be the story for the for the very near term. You know, I think you can't open a newspaper these days without hearing a lot about the way what we call the fracturing story plays out, pitting the US-led block against the China-led block in the climate area. You know, we've seen years worth of subsidies for China for renewables energy really colliding with developed markets in, in the US and increasingly Europe playing catch up on how much support they should be providing for green technology. So I think certainly that's going to dominate factors in the near term. Looking further out though, I think one of the key aspects that we stress is the extent to which the emissions map is going to be redrawn over the coming decades. I mean, taking China, well, we, we think things are probably going to get worse before they get better in terms of emissions in China over the coming decade. But thereafter, we're quite optimistic that a combination of falling population and deindustrialization, gradual decarbonization is going to bring emissions down quite sharply in China. In fact, I mean, actually, I think the one country that really sticks out from our report to the extent to which India is going to continue to grow. We actually see India becoming the world's biggest polluter in the 2040s, overtaking China in the 2040s. This is, as I say, fundamentally a fact of ongoing economic development in India. We've got GDP growing very strongly over this period. It's going to rise to be the third biggest economy. So naturally, as the, the population grows and gets richer, that would be upward pressure on emissions. And even though we do think India will start to move away from coal in the long term. The cheapness and just the abundance of coal means it's going to stay quite a big part of India's energy mix well, well into the 2030s. So yeah, India is certainly one to watch in this regard. One interesting snippet though, it, so notwithstanding that, even if by the end of our forecast horizon in 2050, we have India 
being the biggest emitter in aggregate terms globally. If you look in per capita terms, it's interesting that the average Indian will still emit less than half as much as the average American will over that period. So it just puts it into context that India and China obviously are very big parts of the emissions backdrop and landscape. That's, of course, partly just because they are big parts of the global population. And that's it for this week. You can find our climate economics analysis on our website, along with all our coverage of the banking sector turmoil and its implications for economies and markets. For complete access to our insight, along with powerful data and charting tools, check out CE Advance, our new premium platform. But until next week, goodbye.